When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Welcome to How to Win 2024. It's Thursday, January 18th. I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and I'm here with my co-host, Claire McCaskill. Hi, Claire. Hey, Jen. We're off to the races and the Super Bowl. (laughs) I couldn't help it. Oh, my God. But we're both wishing for a Detroit Lions, uh, Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl. And I mean, I love watching your Chiefs, but if it's Detroit, I will definitely be rooting for Detroit, which is, I got to say, it's America's coolest city right now. I just love it. Love it. So we are also off to the political races, and today we're going to give you our takeaways from the Iowa caucuses and our winners and losers coming out of that contest. And we're also going to check in with former New Hampshire Party Chair, GOP Republican Chair Jennifer Horn. She's going to give us the ground view of what to expect from the Granite State on Tuesday in terms of enthusiasm and turnout, and if Democrats have their act together during this kind of weird process primary they have in New Hampshire. And we're also going to spotlight the ongoing tumult throughout the Middle East uh, with the Houthis lobbying attacks in the Red Sea, the Biden administration responding in kind. Yesterday, they declared the Houthis a specially designated global terrorists. The U.S. responded with lobbying more attacks last night. And, you know, any kind of growing unrest in the Middle East is an issue in 2024. But first, Claire, we've got some winners and losers, and uh, you got a cool, interesting winner this week. Share. So for winner this week, I want to take a look at a group that has done very well under Joe Biden, and that's the Farmers of America. Listen, Joe Biden has done more for farmers than Trump ever thought about doing. That doesn't keep Trump from trying to take credit. Look, I did get you $28 billion, in all fairness, right? Who the hell else would get you $28 billion from China? The farmers of America. I say the farmers of America are not voting against Trump. It is so sad that people in rural America don't understand that it is Joe Biden that has brought more income to them under Obama and under Biden. America's farmers have done better than they did under Donald Trump. Biden and Trump's payments to farmers were virtually identical. Both administrations authorized around $60 billion in direct federal payments to farmers over that time span. Higher income under the Biden years for farmers than under the Trump years. Expanded health care in rural areas and high-speed internet in rural areas. That didn't happen under Trump. It's happening under Joe Biden. So the winners are America's farmers under Joe Biden. I just wish they would figure it out. <laughs> right. You know, I know Secretary Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, was longtime governor of Iowa. This is like a big priority, big hobby horse for him is having rural America understand how the administration is planning for them, thinking about those areas and everything that they've done, you know, from the Inflation Reduction Act to prescription drugs, that you said, and just farm payments doing better, too. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? This is a really good example of Joe Biden doing what's right for the country rather than retribution, because the farmers all voted for Trump. If Trump were president and there was a group that he could punish because they were not for him, he would not go out of his way to help the farmers. But Joe Biden has because he wants to unite the country. He wants to help every part of the country, whether they supported him or not. Um, what, what have you got for a loser this week, Jen? 
Oh, losers. Okay, so Trump won the Iowa caucuses by a landslide. But look deeper at those numbers. Trump's base is very committed to him. And, you know, President Biden had a decisive win in 2020, but Trump got a lot of voters out. More people turned out for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. I see this when I'm out on the road with his rallies. People make an effort to do this. And the Iowa caucuses had a record low turnout, 110,000 Republicans. It's only 15 percent of Iowa's registered Republicans, 15 percent of Iowa's Republicans after hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on the Iowa caucuses, 15 percent turnout. And so Trump got 50 percent of the vote, but his real vote total wasn't that much higher than what he got in 2016. 45,000 people voted for him in 2016, 56,000 people voted for him in 2024. 11,000 people, that's that's the difference. That's how small this universe is. And, you know, he's basically the incumbent, right? And if Biden, as the incumbent, only got 50% in the Iowa caucuses, you know, if, if he was competing in them or the New Hampshire primary, if he's competing in them, you know, that would be, wow, he's really weak and he's weak for the general election. What, what do you think? There's other things in these results that I think are trouble for Trump in the general election. Yeah, I think the enthusiasm thing is a trouble. Uh, 50-50 in your own party after you've been president of the United States should be a huge red flag to them. And the fact that all the negative ads in Iowa, and there was, you know, around $50 million of negative ads run, were all against Haley and DeSantis, not against Trump. So to not have negative ads right. and still only manage 50% of the vote, right. that's a lame, lame result. Um, and, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention about Iowa before we move on to our guest today I, you know, I was uncomfortable with how early everybody called it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that. Yeah. I mean, I remember waiting around for calls when polls are still open in elections. Everyone, I mean, the AP started it, but then we all jumped on. I don't understand why you would do that when people are still voting. I don't get it. Yeah, particularly in the caucuses where people are actually in a room together waiting their yeah. turn to vote. And also, I mean, another criticism I've seen about the networks calling the contest so early is when people really doubt election results right now. You want people to have faith in the results and faith in the process. And if you're declaring a winner midway, I think that's asking for trouble. Listen, these decisions are not without a lot of thought and analysis. And there's a whole process that every outlet goes through in order to call anything. So maybe we need to dive into that in future episodes and really understand why it happened and why it made sense to the networks in this instance. It was jarring, but uh, we probably owe everyone a further explanation of how the decision is made and how thoughtful it actually is. Yeah, it's a good topic to talk about in the future. You know, I think we're all agreed Trump is very likely to be the Republican uh, nominee. But these contests are important in what they reveal for the general election. And then the Biden campaign gets a lot of important information from the Iowa caucuses. Like a lot of people are upset that two thirds of Republicans in the entry polls that voted in Iowa on Monday night, that they said if if Trump was convicted, that they would still vote for him. But I was like, hey, a third said that they wouldn't. I was kind of surprised that 30 percent of Republicans said if he's convicted, they won't vote for him. That is really important information for the Biden campaign. It tells them Republican voters in other states are likely to feel the same way. And there is also 25 percent 
of caucus goers said they would not vote for Trump in a general election, period. And they said they'd vote for Biden. 11% of them said they would vote for Biden. Right. Far more people said they would vote for Biden as opposed to being like, look at a third party. So, you know, Biden has a lot of paths to 270. He can get back the voters he's lost from 2020. People that voted for him in 2020, you know, he's had drop off with young people, black voters, Hispanic voters. We all know. But then also there is this lane of the disgruntled Republican that they're also open, you know, with this. These are Iowa Republicans. Right. <laughs> Those are conservative right. people. And they're telling us a big portion of them are open to voting for Biden. So overall loser for Trump and like really, really important data for Biden campaign. There will be a point in time when it will become more clear that Donald Trump has only done one thing since he began his presidency in 2016. And that is just to keep working on his base. He has never tried to expand he has never tried to bring in people who weren't for him before. He's always been about growing his base and finding more people out there that capitalize on grievance and feel like they've been screwed over in the life and that he's their guy. But it, it doesn't work in a general election. That's why he's never won the popular vote. You've got to appeal to people who weren't for you before if you've lost, because if you don't, you're going to lose again. And that's why I think the Iowa results for Trump make Iowa and Trump the loser of the week. Okay, well, we got to take a quick break. But when we come back, former New Hampshire Republican Party chair Jennifer Horn stops in to chat about what we're going to watch for in Tuesday's primary. Does any of this make any difference at this point? Stay tuned. It's a new year, but it's the same old, no law, just vibe Supreme Court. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And we are the hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast on Crooked Media, who also happen to be constitutional law professors in our free time. Join us each week as we unpack what's on the docket for the Supreme Court term and break down the latest headlines while still managing a laugh or two. So whether you're a lawyer, a law student, or just trying to make sense of what these cases mean, Strict Scrutiny has got you covered. New episodes out every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for some bad decisions. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Welcome back. With Iowa in the rearview mirror, we are in what I like to call the longest week in primary politics. It can also be the most magical week if you're lucky and you do it right. And that is the lull of eight days between Iowa and New Hampshire. It can feel like a long slog or a light breeze, depending on your candidate's momentum. So let's turn our attention to this next primary contest. Jen, did you know that in New Hampshire, voters need to be affiliated with a party to vote in that party's primary? But here is the giant gaping loophole. If you are registered unaffiliated, you can choose one party's ballot, making you a registered member right then and there. So basically, you can show up for the primary and do same-day change of party status, and that allows you to vote in whatever primary you want. And then you can switch back after that particular election. 42% of New Hampshire voters are registered as undeclared. Yes, yeah, this is what makes New Hampshire so interesting and dynamic. And there's very independently minded voters there, which New Hampshire is famous for. 
And it does mean that people can break late and there can be a lot of surprises depending on what the electorate ends up to be. And so we have Jennifer Horm, the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, who knows this better than most. She's a powerhouse when it comes to GOP politics, an original co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and she's host of the podcast. Is it just me or have we all lost our minds? I don't know if we've all lost our minds, but it is not just (laughs) you. And she joins us now. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I think we all feel like we've lost our minds at one moment or another, but it is great to be here, both of you. Thank you for inviting me. We're glad to have you, Jennifer. Let's talk about enthusiasm. I mean, we all know those of us who have been in the trenches trying to win elections and trying to help people win elections know there's two pieces to every victory. One is persuasion, but the other is enthusiasm, getting people to go out of their normal daily routine to show up. There was clearly a problem with enthusiasm in Iowa. What does it feel like on the ground in New Hampshire? And the whole fight in New Hampshire about being the next primary, what has that done to Joe Biden? Him holding the Mm -hmm. line with the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party saying, we're not going to let you go second anymore. How is that all playing out? And what, what will we see in terms of turnout? Boy, there's a lot of questions in there. Let me see mm-hmm. if I miss one, you have to tell me. Uh, I'll start and go backwards with President Biden. And, you know, the DNC's decided they're starting in South Carolina this year. And one of the things I think people don't always understand about New Hampshire, you know, we call ourselves Fitton, first in the nation. And one of the things I think a lot of people don't understand is it's not this thing where we're all, you know, full of ourselves and arrogant and say, oh, we're going to go first and, you know, you guys can go pound sand. It's actually in our constitution that our secretary of state must schedule our primary before any other same or similar event, which is why the Iowa caucuses going before us is never a big problem because it's a caucus, not a primary. So regardless of what the RNC or the DNC ever decides to do with their calendars, the secretary of state in New Hampshire is always going to schedule our primary in advance of any other, you know, same or similar event. And so for President Biden this year, because he's technically not on the ballot, he's not running, he's not campaigning there, there's no formal activity for him. Um, Sometime in the last, I don't know, month, two months or so, the Democratic Party in New Hampshire decided, and I think it was smart of them, frankly, that they need to have some sort of a story about President Biden running, you know, at the same time as we're covering all this craziness in the Republican primary. And so they've engineered a write-in campaign for President Biden. And that does a couple of things. One, it gives Democratic voters in the state a reason to be engaged and, you know, to not lose focus on what's supposed to really be important for them as we're going through this process. You don't want the general election to be the first time that you're reminding voters that there's somebody out there they need to support. So it does that. But it also prevents a lot of those left of center undeclared voters from coming over and getting involved in the Republican primary. Hmm. A lot of people think it would be better if the left leaning undeclareds got involved in the Republican primary and try to make sure that Nikki Haley is the outcome rather than Donald Trump or something like that. But in the long game, having those folks get involved in the Republican primary is not necessarily in Joe Biden's best interest. Do the Democrats want a stronger general election candidate or would they prefer somebody like Donald Trump, who as dangerous as he potentially is, is going to be, in my estimation at least, easier to defeat in November than Nikki Haley would be. So that's number one. 
let's see, what was, what was, enthusiasm. The, what was the question before that? Enthusiasm. It's all about enthusiasm. I'm a big believer that enthusiasm is just about the most important thing because, you know, imagine next Tuesday that there's a blizzard and it's two degrees outside and the roads are covered with ice and school is closed and everything else. It's still going to be primary day. You know, that enthusiasm is the most important thing. And for Donald Trump, he never loses enthusiasm. His people are with him a hundred percent. They are going to show up on election day, no matter what. So if you're Nikki Haley, your biggest challenge is matching that enthusiasm because her voters, as we've seen, you know, on page two and page three of all these polls are simply not as committed to her as Trump's voters are to him. So she can't afford anything that will get in the way of folks turning out on election day. And finally, I think you asked me about Iowa at some point. I think you should anticipate that the results in New Hampshire are going to look a lot like the results in Iowa. Mm, That means you think Trump will win. I think Trump will win big. Mm, Wow. I love going to New Hampshire. It's such a, it can be, you know, magical eight days for a campaign. If you do it right. If you're a political person, this is a great time. New Hampshire is your Walt Disney World right now. So, yeah, yeah. I just like I, I'm, a, I'm like a political tourist. I mean, I just I, I love it. And so New Hampshire will have your back, but you got to do it the right way. You know, you yes. have to. And this is like so on Monday night after the caucus, I was like, OK, Nikki Haley, show me you're serious. Showing me you're serious is you fly from Iowa to New Hampshire Monday mm-hmm. night. You have a rally when you land. Maybe you get two hours of sleep. I don't care if you land at two in the morning, four in the morning, you have a rally when you land. There is a picture right. of you the next morning when people like turn on TV and pick up their phones. There is a photo of you with some people behind you being excited. Right. You're at the Merrimack on Tuesday morning, shaking everybody's hands as they're getting their morning coffee. You're just in it. You're doing every town hall. You're taking questions from every voter. And importantly, you're taking questions from the press multiple times a day because you want throughout the, the day, throughout the day, local press, also national press, because you need everyone to get swept up in the New Hampshire magic and the press. They can be with you in creating this momentum if they see you trying. And, you know, Nikki Haley's father, unfortunately, is in the hospital and she needed mm. to go see him. So, you know, that's one thing. Putting that aside, what she needs to do. She didn't do any of the other stuff I mentioned. She's not taking questions. She didn't do the like land in, you know, Manchester at four in the morning and do a rally or any of that. Like, what do you make of her effort? And like, does it tell you she's not actually trying? I mean, I'm doubting if she's actually trying to win now. So the problem with Nikki Haley is that as she left Iowa and came into New Hampshire, when she should have been building this momentum and really focused on those voters, she it feels like suddenly it's become more about her than about the voters, more about her than about the people and the families and the struggles. And it's kind of hard to explain exactly why it feels that way, other than maybe because she's like constantly, you feel like she's in this constant mode of having to correct what she has said, or, uh, you know, the whole, we've never been a racist country and the Civil War bad answer and things like that, you know? they Yeah, that happened in New Hampshire. And just those kinds of things, they get in the way of the momentum and they get in the way of her connecting with voters. They get in the way of voters looking at her as a viable leader, a viable winner. And it becomes more about her. You know, she's correcting her path and she's correcting her message. And the other thing I want to say about Nikki Haley really quickly coming out of Iowa 
is that after the results, after the uh, caucuses were over in Iowa and she gave that big speech, I was okay with the speech. I felt like it was f- fairly positive and forward-looking and, and you know, where you'd want to be coming out of Iowa going into New Hampshire until she got to this thing where she tried to make her message about, all of a sudden it's about Trump and Biden together. America doesn't want yeah. an 80-year-old. America doesn't want chaos and division. This, and then Biden and Trump trying to create equivalency between, you know, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump is so ridiculous. It's so outside of reality. Nobody buys that. Nobody buys that. On either side. That's what I'm saying, on either side. side. (laughs) You know, and so the question, like, why isn't she doing better? Why isn't she getting more momentum? Where are those anti-Trump people? She's not giving them a reason to not vote for Donald Trump. You know, she can talk about herself forever, but if she doesn't give voters a reason why not to vote for the guy who's, you know, 15 or 20 points ahead of her, then it, it falls flat. And this idea that Trump and Biden are the same person and belong in the same box is insane, you know, because one of them incited an insurrection. One of them, like we can go through this list. One of them admires Vladimir Putin and copies the language of dictators and says he'll just be a dictator for a day. I mean, let's go through the whole list. I don't care if you're a lifelong Republican and you just hate Joe Biden just because he's a Democrat. You don't think that he's the same kind of person that Donald Trump is. And I think that that message is going to fail for her. Let's hope you're right. So we've we've covered enthusiasm. We've covered the process, which is different in New Hampshire. Uh, we've covered the fact that you say that Trump is going to win. So we've done the <laughs> odds here. Now, here's my big question to finish up our time with you. Is New Hampshire in play in November? Has Sununu uh, done a good enough job? And is the black mark against Biden not participating in the New Hampshire primary? Do we have to worry about New Hampshire's electoral votes? No, no. You don't have to worry that New Hampshire is going to go Republican in the general election. And says the former GOP chair. <laughs> I I'm love somebody that, that for a I really long what? time would have given you a very different answer just because I wanted to encourage people to get out there and vote. But I've reached a point in my life where it's just, and with all due respect to, to folks on both sides of the aisle, the party loyalty is a big part of what has become wrong in our politics, in my opinion. When our loyalty is to the party over the truth, or over principle, then we get all screwed up. And, and I think that contributes to a lot of what we struggle with today. No, I, I don't think there's a chance that New Hampshire is going to go Republican in the presidential election. It is, has been a purple state for a very long time. Governor Sununu's success, you know, he's a four-term governor there, but his success has been rooted in large part uh, in the fact that he's a very moderate Republican that he's able to win over the support of a lot of those undeclared folks who tend to vote Republican because they all tend to be more moderate. There's not going to be some sudden turn where all the Democrats and left-leaning undeclared are suddenly looking seriously at Donald Trump. We know that there's this group of Democrats and more liberal-leaning voters who went for Trump in 2016, and we saw that in uh, certain more rural areas in our state and less educated, lower-income parts of our state. But it wasn't some huge outcome shifting impact that's going to you know, live on till today. Uh, I think that Joe Biden better get to New Hampshire and he better he, you can't take it for granted. He, he better get serious about campaigning up there. But I, I, with all due respect to my friends who are still in the Republican Party, it's not going to happen. Good, good, good. OK, so Jennifer Horn, the former New Hampshire GOP party chair, 
uh, one of the original co-founders of the Lincoln Project and host of the podcast, Is It Just Me or Have We All Lost Our Minds? Let me say that again, because it should be like (laughs) needle-pointed on a pillow. I should needle-point it and wear it on my belt. Is it just me or have we lost our (laughs) minds? And we thank you so much for joining us today. Senator, thank you. Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Claire and I are going to throw a spotlight on the Middle East, the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, and what the Biden team is doing about it. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context all in 20 minutes or less. That's One Big Thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Yesterday, the Houthis were redesignated by the Biden administration as a specially designated global terrorist group. Basically, what we've done is we have elevated their status in terms of how they're treated as a terrorist organization. The Houthis are an Iran-backed militia group, and they are a proxy for Iran. And Iran has decided that what they want to do is disrupt commerce through the Red Sea. This is really important. And I think the fact that the Houthis are launching missiles and damaging civilian sea craft, they're not shooting at military targets. They're shooting at civilian sea craft, and it's caused a lot of chaos in the Red Sea. They say it's a protest against Israel because they support Hamas. This is really about Iran flexing its muscle at this critical time of unrest in the Middle East. And, you know, I got to say, Jen, and I'd love your reaction to this. I think the biggest problem that Joe Biden has with this is it's not been explained to the American people. It's super complicated and it's not been explained. And yeah, yeah, it it, it is complicated, but you can make it simpler. It's about attacking civilians. It's about attacking American craft that are in international waters. It is about responding to a threat. And by the way, it's also about gas prices. They're trying to drive up gas prices to hurt Joe Biden, and more importantly, to hurt Joe Biden, to hurt the American people. And I I do think that when you start launching missiles in another country without a full explanation to the American people, and I mean from Joe Biden, why he is doing this and why it's important, you're going to see the poll numbers we're seeing where Democrats and Republicans are saying, oh, this is a big mistake. I think this has been a huge political blunder by the White House not slowing down long enough to explain exactly what they're doing and why. And I just wondered what your take on that was. So I think I imagine they are concerned. You know, when I go to Trump rallies, the most convincing argument for Trump that I hear, you know, parroted back to me from his supporters are when he was president, milk was cheaper, gas was cheaper, my 401k was doing better, and we didn't have any wars. And he's the only one who can stop us from World War III. Now, those are Trump supporters, okay? So that is what they think. I understand the concern. The concern is, this sounds like World War III. 
But that's Trump supporters. That's what they believe. The rest of the country, you need to articulate exactly what's happening. And I thought the way you just did it, you know, their goal is to raise gas prices because they want to hurt you. That's a motivating argument to make. But I think that the Biden team is probably concerned that if they spend a lot of time talking about this, it's going to generate more concern. Admiral John Kirby, who's the National Security Council spokesperson of the White House, he described the ongoing strikes that the U.S. is launching, and they did some again last night, against the Houthis as an effort to prevent escalation. We're not interested in uh, a war with Yemen. We're not interested in a conflict of any kind here. In fact, everything the president has been doing has been trying to prevent uh, any escalation of conflict, uh, including the strikes last night. Right. So I think they're trying to they're hoping that they are able to kind of keep a lid on this situation. I understand what they're concerned about. They're concerned about spending too much time on this topic where, you know, what's the president doing for the last week? The president for the last week has been going around the country talking about the economy. That's what they want him to do. He's going to North Carolina today. He went to Pennsylvania last week. He's going to go to Nevada. He's going to go to Michigan later this month. Like, that's what they want him doing. But they don't want it to look like chaos. I think what they have to do is, if this Middle East region is still continues to be as inflamed as it is, you got to make the argument, imagine this under Trump, right? Uh, you got to right. make the contrast argument. That's exactly right. So let's let's get into the three areas that we think we need to lay out in a little more clear fashion for everyone to understand what's going on. First, the Houthis. What is actually happening here is these are precision strikes. And trust me, as a member of the Armed Services Committee for 12 years, we can do this. And these precision Mm -hmm. strikes are going directly against the weapons that are being used to attack these seagoing vessels, these merchant vessels in the Red Sea. These are not attacks against civilians or communities. They're just taking out the weapons that they're using. And these are all weapons that have been paid for by Iran. And so that is, you know, good on them. I mean, good good for them having the intelligence and the capability. People don't realize the amount of money that's been invested in our military does have dividends. And one of the dividends is we have high technical capability to lead strikes like this And I think that trying to de-escalate by taking out their ability to make these attacks is important. And it sounds counterintuitive, but I get it Um, now. Right. You know, I mean, I have a lot of background in this area, so it's a little easier for me to grasp what they're up to. But um, what they're doing is important. And I think it's probably the right thing to do, especially vis-a-vis Iran. So let's look at Israel, Hamas, Gaza. So That war just passed a 100-day mark. Biden has been leaning into his foreign policy chops. By the way, I think doing so, I think it's also sort of a way of dealing with the age issue. If you you look just at images of Biden from when he was a senator and he went in Israel with Indira Gandhi up to uh, the present day, I think it's, I showed that visually to, to voters. Like, you see, he was kind of built for this moment, right? Like, only Biden, as opposed to Trump saying Biden's gonna start World War III, it's like only Biden has the experience to deal with the incredibly tricky situation. Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, our friend, doing great work in the region, negotiating with Egypt to open the border early on to get the civilians out, recently with the Saudis. Biden has a lot of criticism coming in when he was in South Carolina at the AME church. There was a protester that was protesting about a ceasefire. He was like, let this person be heard. They feel passionately about it. And he let the guy know, he's like, and by the way, 
I've been speaking to BB, I'm paraphrasing him, but I've been speaking to Netanyahu and letting him know of our concerns. I understand their passion. And I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. I'm using all that I can to do. But I understand the passion. Like, he wants us to know that the U.S. understands that the U.S. is concerned about what's happening in Gaza, very concerned about the civilians, and that there needs to be a change of behavior from the Israelis. And when Blinken's latest trip to the region, you know, you see more and more of that both in his dealing with Arab leaders and in dealing with the Israelis, a toughening of the language. And the administration's backgrounding reporters, you don't see the president saying it yet, but the administration's backgrounding reporters, that they're negotiation, they're a toughening of, of a stance with the Israelis. And I feel like that means we're a few days away from public criticism for the newest president if change isn't happening. So the Biden team understands there's, there's political implications to everything that's happening in the region as well. And the Americans need to know what they're saying to push back on Netanyahu. So Bibi's a problem and it, 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 they're working around him now. And they've got other Arab nations in the right place saying they will help with the reconstruction of the Palestinian areas. They will recognize Israel, which would be a huge step forward in the Middle East. They've got everybody ready. And the biggest problem here is Bibi and the far, far right in Israel. So I think they're slowly and methodically working this. And I think if once Bibi uh, gets out of the way, I'm optimistic and I, I hope for the region and for the people who want peace, both in Gaza and in Israel that this works out. I, I think it's important to not leave this topic without talking about Iran. And, you know, for those of you that are interested, it's helpful to get background and you can get this online about the history of the Sunni Shiite conflict. All of this comes back to fights among Muslims, uh, a lot of it. And the fact that Iran is now attacking Pakistan and attacking Iraq. And by the way, they are the captain of the football team in terms of leading the fight against Israel. Always. Iran is the captain of the team. They're the ones that are going to try to always undermine Israel in any way they can. They have stated over and over again they would like to destroy the state of Israel. Now, their attacks have been cautious and limited. And they would say, in fairness to them, they would say this is in return for some brutal attacks they have suffered internally in Iran. I think America's kind of glossed over, but there have been some very effective attacks now. I don't know if those were Israel-backed or if this was coming from other places, but Iran felt like they had to do something to manage their domestic politics, and that's why they have done this. Within 24 hours, they did Pakistan, Iraq, and Syria. And, and rather than like try to say it was someone else, which is common in the Middle East, they said, no, it was us. Yeah, we did yeah. that. We're proud of it. This is a shift to bolder action, even though it was cautious and limited. It was bold the way they claimed credit for it. He is trying to straddle a line, Joe Biden. He's trying to straddle a line, keeping Iran in check, working towards a two-state solution, protecting Americans in terms of disruption in their economy and what it means in their lives. And I am so glad he's got experienced people around him. Think about what it would be like. Who in the world would he put in as Secretary of State? Peter Navarro? You know, oh I God. mean, 
who would he put in as Secretary of State? Because my pillow guy. Yeah, everyone who served as Secretary of State for him has basically said that this guy was a nightmare when it came to foreign policy, taking the side of Russian word versus our own intelligence, basically bashing the American intelligence service and bashing American diplomats on the world stage, trying to get us out of NATO. So I think it's going to be a a sticky wicket and literally a minefield in many ways. But I, I have confidence that Biden has the right team in place and that they're doing the right things. I just wish they'd take a pause and explain it better to the American people. I mean, I can see, you know, like having been White House communications director, I can understand being at the situation they are in now and thinking, I want to give it another week and see where we are. And if if the situation has gotten worse, then we're going to need to explain it. But it's a pretty precarious situation politically that he's in right now. And he's been on an upswing. And like, let's have more clarity in our own minds about the fight we're facing before we go spend a lot of time talking to the American public about it. But everybody should brace because the situation is difficult. Bibi Netanyahu does not want Joe Biden to be president. Vladimir Putin does not want Joe Biden to be president. It's well within both of their power and character to take actions that would hurt Biden politically for the purposes of helping Donald Trump. You know, we get later in the year, etc. So if Biden's got to take this on and go to the public, he can make a good argument about I am the person you want in charge now. But obviously, we just hope that all of this is able to get resolved through the manner that they're trying to accomplish now. Let's pray for peace. Yeah. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have a question for us, you can send it to howtowinquestions at NBCUNI.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194, and we might answer it on the pod. This show is produced by Vicki Vergalina and Jessica Schrecker with production support from Ivy Green. Katherine Anderson and Bob Mallory are our audio engineers. Our head of audio production is Bryson Barnes. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.